We're going to jump into our study today, and uh, let me just say, even before we get into it, that um, today is going to be just an old school Bible study. And uh, so, well, yeah, we'll see. So, <laughs> so, so this, you, you want to file under just stuff you just got to know. And I don't have a big finish, so at the end of it, I'm going to go there and, and just walk off. So just so you know, yeah, drop the mic. <laughs> So anyways, we're going to jump right in. We have been working on Sunday morning through the book of Genesis, and as we've traveled through, we've come to this man, Abraham. Now, at this point, he's called Abram, but we will know him as Abraham. And uh, we began studying his life and his journey in the New Testament, and each week I put this verse on our outline. It's so important because Abraham, there in your outline, is the father of all who believe. He's the Old Testament example of the New Testament believers. Believer. That is that he is the example of what it means to grow in faith, and uh, and so he's maturing. We're, we're watching him him grow, and it, it says that he's the father of faith. But he doesn't begin that way. He begins like all of us. He's going to make some mistakes as he goes, but he's growing, so that's good. So. Uh, each week I'll also say that, that uh, God tells us certain stories in Abram's life. Now, so much more happened than what we're told, but God tells us what he wants us to know, and he gives us the details that are there for, for us. So as, we begin, as we've been traveling and following his journey, you'll remember back in chapter 12, Abram begins to follow the Lord. And it's at that time that he gets some things right, doesn't get everything right, but he's following the Lord, much, much like you and I. Comes to chapter 13, and God has to deal with a certain relationship in his life that God wants him to separate from. And although this person is a believer, he's not actually helping Abram become everything that God wants him to become. And, uh, and so God calls him to separate. And sometimes as you walk with the Lord, there's going to be some relationships in your life that God's going to say, you need to just move that person to the, the outer circle because they're not, they're not going in the same direction. Each week I need to say, we're not talking about your spouse, but, but so just put that out there. So we come to chapter 15, and I, and I want us to notice something, that the opening line of chapter 15 is after these things. Does your Bible say after these things? Now, that's going to be vitally important for our study today because what we're going to find is that something happens in chapter 15 that doesn't happen any other time. It's going to be after these things. We're going to find that God's going to speak to Abram five times in this chapter, which is unheard of as far as in his story. God's going to speak through a vision. God's going to reiterate some promises. God's going to give a covenant. He's going to talk about Abram's future. He's going to talk about Israel's future. He's going to speak in a vision. And then God is also going to speak in a dream. This never happens until after these things. Well, well, after what things? Well, after the events of chapter 14. See, the, the phrase after these things connects the two chapters together. So you'll remember back in chapter 14, if you go back just a little bit, uh, back to verse 18, the, the story we looked at, we won't, won't uh, tell the whole story today, but, but uh, Abram hears that his nephew Lot has been taken captive. And so Abram launches his army, and he has a military that he travels with, and they go after the kings that have captured his, his nephew Lot. And uh, he attacks, and he attacks five kings, and he wins, and he brings back Lot, and he brings back all the stuff. 
And so when he does, on the way back, he encounters a king, and we know him as Melchizedek. And we, we noticed this a couple of weeks ago. If you look at verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of, Salem, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest. He's going to be a priest and a king of God Most High. And he blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then the one detail that we're given is he gave him a tenth of all. Abram gives this Melchizedek a, a, a tenth of everything. A, a, some of your Bibles would say a, a tithe. And so when, when we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, we noticed a few things that his name is actually means king of righteousness. And when it says king of Salem, we would say king of shalom, and that means king of peace. And so he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We also noticed that we were told that whoever he is, he has existed from everlasting. He's a priest and he's also a king, which would be very odd in the Old Testament. And then we notice that he brought to Abram, it said in verse 18, it says he brought out bread and wine. And we said that was the elements for communion. And so some hold, I do, that this is what's called a Christophany. That is Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. It happens a, a few times in the Old Testament. And the one detail that we get out of that is that Abram responds to Jesus, Melchizedek here, uh, by giving him a tenth, a, a tithe, we would say. So he does that. And uh, Abram meets another king. Of course, we know him as the king of Sodom. And Sodom just means burning. So he's the king of burning. We called him the king of hell. And so we, we, we looked at that. Abram wants nothing to do with that king. So chapter 15 begins with after these things, that is after this encounter that he has with these kings. So he's returned from war. He gives to the king of righteousness. He gives him 10%. And then verse 1, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, you want to underline the word vision. That's going to be important for our study. Saying, do not fear, Abram, for I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. So the first thing that we want to notice here, and you want to write this down, is that God speaks to Abram in a vision in the day. This vision is actually going to be in the day, and that's going to be important for our study. Uh, this is the first time that God speaks to anybody in the Bible in a vision, but it will be after these things, after the events of chapter 14. And then it says in verse one, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came. And uh, this is going to be the first time that phrase, although it's going to be common in the Bible, this is the first time where it says the word of the Lord comes to anyone. So uh, this, that's the first time. And then God says, whether your Bible says to fear not or to not be afraid, we notice it says, and after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear or do not be afraid, Abram. So God says, do not fear for the first time or do not be afraid, however your Bible says it. This is the first time that God will tell anybody to not be afraid. And this will be after these things. So, so why does God have to tell Abram to not be afraid? Well, because Abram is afraid. And after these things in the last chapter, he takes his military and he goes and he attacks five kings and he brings back his nephew Lot and all the stuff. And now Abram is concerned that these kings are going to regroup. They're going to get some other kings and they're going to come back and they're going to launch a counterattack. So he's, God says, do not be afraid. And I think this is important for us today. 
Um, some of us are facing some very difficult situations right now in our world and, and in our lives. And uh, because Abraham, Abram, is our example of what it means to grow and walk in faith, he's facing a very difficult situation, and God's word to him is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In the New Testament, Peter will tell us this there in your outline, casting all your anxiety on, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. God here sees Abram's situation. He cares for him. He says, don't worry. Don't be afraid, whatever you do. Another thing that we see is that after these things, God gives a promise. There's going to be two promises here. And the first one there on your outline is, I am a shield to you, which is the promise of protection. The promise of protection. So Abram's concerned at this point. And uh, let me also add that here, Abram is facing a situation. He's living in a foreign land. He can't fix this situation. He, there, there's nothing that he can do um, if, if these kings all gather together and come back against him. So there's nothing that, that he can do in himself to fix this situation. So God says to him that this is not going to be something that you're going to take care of. Uh, I'm going to protect you in this. Well, then the second promise, he says, your reward shall be very great. So what we're going to find is it's going to be the promise of a very great blessing. Just five verses before this, Abram encounters Melchizedek, a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, and he gives him 10%. And so he's just given that, and the first thing that God says is, hey, your reward is going to be very, very great. So it's the promise of great blessing. And uh, this morning, um, this was going to be the, the promise of great provision, but this isn't God's way of saying, I'm going to just provide for you. It's God's way of saying, I'm going to bless you greatly. Provision is when your needs are met. What God is doing here is going to overabundantly bless Abraham. So it's the promise of, of great blessing. God is not bound by the circumstances to bless Abram. Just as right now, as some of us are facing some challenging situations, God is not bound by your situation to take care of you and to bless you in, in whatever it is that, that we're, we're facing. Does that make sense? I love this verse, and uh, many of us come from very different church backgrounds, but a few years ago, I put this verse on the screen, and I said, all right, everybody, we're going to read this verse, and so we all started reading it. It's there in your outline, it says, and let them say continually, the Lord be magnified who delights in thee, and what's that word? Prosperity. Prosperity of his servant. So we read through that verse a few years ago and put it on the screen, everybody was reading it until they came to the word prosperity, and everybody just stopped. And, and because it was so uncomfortable because many of us come from a church background where, where we've never been told that God wants to, to bless, bless our lives. Now, God loves to see his people win. He loves to see his people blessed. How many of you here, if you're a parent, it, do you want to see your kids be able to pay their bills and be able to, to have enough to meet all their needs and some left over and be able to do all the things that, that life would require. You want to see them have good relationships. Do, do you know why you want that? You want that for your kids because you are unique in the creation in that you are created in the image of God. See, alligators are not created in the image of God. <laughs> 
They don't care about their offspring. They eat their offspring. They, they don't care. But you, because you're created in the image of God, you care about how your children do and you want to see them do well. There is no parent here who says, you know, I just really hope that my kids grow up and, well, I just want to see them struggle and have their cars repossessed and not able to pay their house payment, get evicted, and like to see them have some horrible disease, you know, just so that, you know, they can just learn the lessons of life. Do any of you want that for your children? You want to know why? because you're created in the image of God. And that's the God that you serve. And he delights to see you win. He's not bound by your circumstance to bless you. I know that makes people uncomfortable, but it's just what the verse says. So Abraham sees his circumstances right now, but God says, I see more than that, and I'm going to bless you. Well, verses two and three, Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And he just keeps spewing it out. And Abram said, since you've given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is going to be my heir. And so we looked at this last week. Abram is in his 80s at this point. And uh, in that day, there was a custom where if you didn't have an heir, the, the next in line in your household would be the one who would take everything. And so Abram thinks, and you want to write this down, at this point in his life, he thinks the situation is impossible. Even though God has promised, all the way back in chapter 12, and we've seen it several times, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. It appears that Abram was very excited about the promise, but it hasn't happened yet. And so now he thinks it's an impossible situation. So what does God do? Well, God just reaffirms the the promise. Notice verses four and five. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man shall not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, "Now, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now, keep in mind, um, God reiterates the promise, but keep in mind that this is a vision. Abram sees this in a vision, and this vision is going to be in the daytime, and we'll see how that works in a few minutes. So God is able to take him outside in the vision and show him the stars of the sky. At this point, Abram should be saying, my offspring are going to be like the stars of the sky, stars of heaven. So many can't count them, Uh, but he's not doing that. But here's, here's what I can, I can tell you. In, in your life and in my life, and please write this down, that like Abraham, we will all come to a place where, all we, where we'll all have to decide, will I trust him when all I have to go on is his word? See, right now in Abram's life, nothing looks like this promise is ever going to take place. All he has to go on is what God says. And right now, some of us are facing a situation where we have no idea how it's going to work out. The only thing we have to go on is God's word and God's promise. So it goes on, and then in verse six, we looked at this last week. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So we looked at this last week. I I, want to do this just very quickly this week, but last week I put that on your outline from the uh, literal translation. And what I want you to know is this verse that probably takes two lines in your Bible in Hebrew is only five words. 
And so I'm going to read through this. I'm going to have you underline the five words that are actually there in the verse. So there in your outline, he and he hath believed, underline that, in Jehovah, that's going to be Bah Yahweh. Bah Yahweh is one word. It's sort of like when you say run or running. It's just a difference in the tense, but it's one word. So he hath believed in Jehovah, and he, and underline, reckoneth it, reckoneth it to, underline, him, righteousness. Five words in the original language. So the, the reason I say that is in my translation in verse 6, the first word is then he believed. How many of your Bibles say that? Then he believed, which is fine. But the, the problem with that is the word then is not there in the original language. So when you read then he believed, you think that that happened right here. Literally, it just says he believed or he hath believed. Now, last week I read a commentary. Let me do this real quick. Have I put you to sleep yet? All right, this is going to do it. So, so if you read a commentary on this, and uh, this is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, again, from last week, Genesis 15.6 provides an important note, but it does not pinpoint Abram's conversion. That occurred years earlier when he left Ur. The form of the Hebrew word for believed recorded here, uh, believe, shows that his faith did not begin after the events of the first five verses, but Abram's faith is recorded here because it's foundational to making the covenant. There's going to be a covenant that's going to be made, and God wants us to know this right here. So this verse here is not where Abram was converted. Uh, He's been believing God Ever since before chapter 12, he's been following the Lord. He believed God when he followed the Lord in chapter 12. He believed in the Lord when he uh, built the altar and he called in the name of the Lord. It's just telling us here that he hath believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So this verse could be placed anywhere, but it's placed here for a reason. The point that's being made here is that he's reckoned righteous before God because of his faith in God at this point. So it says he believed in God. And this is so important because um, it's the same thing with you and I. This is recorded three times in the New Testament just to say that you're right with God because of your faith and what it is that he has done. Abram hasn't brought anything to the table. He doesn't have it all figured out. We're going to find that it's not all operating the way it needs to be. But he's right with God because he believes in in this place, in God or in Jehovah. Interesting also where it says he hath believed, which means he believed in the past. The word there for believed is amen. In Hebrew, they'd say aman. In Greek, they'd say amen. And we say amen in English. It's the same word. Literally, it says that he said amen to God. And that's literally what he said. Amen to God, and, and that's all that it took. And he couldn't add anything to it. Interesting also, since this is after these things, we're going to find, and you want to write this down, the, this is going to be the first mention of believed and righteousness in your Bible. These words don't appear until this chapter. Abram believes in God, and he is right with God, and yet what we're going to find is, like, like many of us, we're right with God. Nobody's questioning that we're saved. But where we're struggling is believing the actual promise of God in a certain area of our life. And so Abram's growing. 
And uh, what we said last week is being right with God does not activate God's promise in our life. So he's right with God, but so far it's just not happening. So write this down. The key to faith is continually saying what God has said. You see, even though God has promised Abram several times that he's going to have an heir, here in this chapter, he's just speaking his circumstances. I have no heir. You haven't given me an heir. I have no descendants. It's just not happening. And he's speaking his circumstances, and uh, he's frustrated with the result because faith isn't activated by speaking our circumstances. So in the New Testament, we have the perfect example. There in your outline, Jesus says, the one who, Jesus said, the one who sent me is true, so I say in the world, what's that next word? Only what I have heard from him. Jesus never spoke his circumstances. When there's the 5,000 and everyone is hungry, he doesn't say, no food, not going to work it out. Where are we going to go? How are we going to do it? He, he never speaks his circumstances. He will only say what he has heard from his father. That's how faith operates, when you say only what God says about your situation. So at this point, Abram should be saying, my offspring are going to be like the stars of the sky. He's not there yet. He will be. Many of us were not there yet. We will be. And so stay, stay tuned for the story. So he's growing and so are we. So verses seven and eight. And he said to him, God is speaking, I, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Don't you remember all that I've done? But Abram at this point, I love this. He said, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? God's like, I'm here. I'm telling you, you're actually here in the land. So when he says, I am God, and I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he's reminding Abraham of what it is that he's done in the past. So write this down and let's unpack it. When you get in a situation like that, you want to remember the God stories. God is reminding Abram of all that's happened in his life. Abram's launched out. He has, he has some God stories. One, one of my favorites is, is the story. We, we looked at it a couple chapters ago. And Abram gets scared, and so he runs down to Egypt. Remember that great story? He goes down to Egypt, and he tells his wife, he says, hey, baby, I need you to tell everybody you're my sister. Remember that great story? And so um, when you read the story, you, you, you find that Pharaoh recognizes or sees her. He wants to take her in his harem. Abram is actually the guy that negotiates the deal in order for Pharaoh to take Abram's wife, who he's passing off as his sister, into Pharaoh's harem. Ladies, would you say that Abram was in sin at that point? <laughs> Absolutely. So, but you know what's so interesting about that? He was, but guess what? God still showed up on his behalf. Did he have it all worked out? No, but God still showed up. It's a God story. Abram should be talking at this point about all the times that God has shown up. There on your outline, it says, there they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord. And when your back is against the wall, you want to start recounting all the times that God has shown up in your life. In, in our family, what we do is I keep, I keep a Word document every year, and it's called What God Has Done, and then it has the year attached to it, 2019, 2020, 2021. 
And every time we're facing a situation and God shows up in the situation, we write down the story, write down the story. And and then when we're facing another situation and we don't know how it's going to work out, Cheryl and I will begin to tell the stories back and forth of all the times that literally our back was against the wall. We had no idea how it was going to work out, but it worked out. When you begin doing that, we, we do this with each other, we do this with our kids, but when you do that and you remember all the times that God has shown up here, and then you see what you're facing there, when you tell the stories of all that he's done here, it gives you the faith to believe that he's going to show up there. Does that make sense? And so, so you want to do that. Abram should be doing that at this point. But at this point, Abram's not saying, praise the Lord, this is my land. And even though God is speaking to him, verse 8, he says, yeah, but how, Lord, may I know that I will possess it? At this point in Abram's journey, he's growing, he's right with God. But at this point in his life, God's word is not enough. God's going to bring him to the place where God's word is enough. So verse nine, it says, so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old, God is speaking here. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought out all these to him. God doesn't tell him what to do with it. He says, then he brought out all these to him and he cut them in two and laid them each half opposite the other. And he did not cut the birds. He did not cut the birds. Well, interesting, God says, I want you to go get these animals. And God doesn't tell Abram what to do. But in verse 10, Abram cuts them in two. God didn't say to do that. Abram knows what God is doing. This is a custom of the day and the way that they would cut a contract, you might say. So Abram understood exactly what God was doing. So write, write this down. God worked through the local customs. And so Abram knows that in the custom of the day, the way that they would sign a contract is if this was a serious contract, you would take the animals and then you would cut the animals in half and you'd lay them down. They would be dead at that point and the blood and all that. And then the two parties would walk between the animals and they would walk in a figure eight, figure eight. And the idea would be, as they, that would be their way of signing the contract. In our day, we just say, uh, you know, call a, call a lawyer. But, but in those days, that's how they did that. The idea was, was simply this. As they walked through the animals, that was their way of saying, if anyone breaks this covenant, let them be treated like these animals here who are now dead. Does that make sense? So if I break this, let me be treated like those animals. So God says, let's make a contract. By the way, just for fun, this is a Middle Eastern custom. God has a way of stepping into a culture and speaking to people where they're at in their understanding. So this is how they did things in in the Middle East. As a matter of fact, this would actually go on for another thousand years in the future uh, before they had contracts and things like that. In the book of Jeremiah, it says this, God is speaking. It says, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. That's, that's how they made the covenant back in, in those days. So, and God d- deals with them the way that they understand. Now, very important. The first nine verses are a vision. The vision ends between verse nine and 10. Uh, God says, go get these animals. The vision ends 
Abram has to go get the animals, and that's not going to be in a vision. Well, he prepares the animals, and then in verse 11, it says, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. And the idea is he's going to have to do this, it appears, all afternoon. Birds of prey in the Bible are always seen as uh, an, an, a, an evil omen, is the idea. And so these birds are going to come and try to contaminate the covenant that God wants to make. And so Abram's going to have to continuously shoo them away. The covenant that God is about to make is going to be about Israel's future and the possession of the land of Israel. The covenant is going to talk about the enslavement in Egypt. It's going to talk about the release and how God is giving the land to the nation of Israel. But even though God gives the land to the nation of Israel, there will be these constant birds who will come and try to destroy the covenant. So if you were to look, um, Israel became a nation again. We'll talk about this in a few minutes. Israel became a nation again in 1948. Since that time, there have been countless attacks against the nation of Israel by the United Nations, the EU, and things like that. Those birds of prey that want to destroy that covenant that God is making. We'll see how that works out as we go. So verse 12 Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep, you want to underline deep sleep, fell upon Abram, and behold, a terror and great darkness fell upon him. So here the sun is going down, Abram's asleep, and I want you to write this down. God speaks to Abram in a dream at night. Sun's going down, this is going to be night. This is going to be a dream. Dreams are when you're asleep. Visions are when you're awake. And so this is going to be very different than what we saw in the first part of the chapter. This is going to be a supernatural darkness that comes upon Abram. He can't see anything else. And what we're going to find is that this dream is going to be a dream of very, a very dark and dreadful time period that's going to come upon his descendants. So he's asleep, and this is after these things. And what we notice, and please write this down, Abram receives understanding of the future. It's going to be the future of Israel and his future. So verse 13, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. That's going to be Egypt. And where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. You want to underline 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. But as for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. He's going to be, Abram's going to die when he's 175. Then in the fourth generation, and you want to underline fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorites were the leading tribe in, we'd say, Israel or the land of Canaan at that point. So God tells Abram, the nation of Israel is going to be enslaved. We know that as, as Egypt. But very interesting, one of the things that we notice here, in verse 13, God says they're going to be oppressed for 400 years. Everybody see that? And then in verse 16, God says, but in the fourth generation, I'm going to bring them out. How many of you have ever heard that a generation in the Bible is 100 years? A couple, Okay. How many of you have ever heard that a generation is 70 years? How many of you have ever heard that a generation is 40 years? Okay. 
Here's what you need to know. In the Bible, a generation is a generation. Now, when when I say this, um, here's why. In Genesis chapter 15, now when we were in the early part of Genesis, people were living almost a thousand years. And so a generation would be a certain number of years if you were to go back that far. By the time you get to Genesis 15, and when it does give the ages, at this point in the Bible, the average age is 150 years old when somebody dies. So at that time, um, a generation would be about 100 years. Does that make sense? As you get further away and you come closer to us, the age goes down. So a generation won't be 100 years, hundreds of years later, when people are living 120 years or 80 years. So it's not that it's 100 years or 70 years. A generation is a generation. It's just that at this point, people are living 150 years. And so there, a generation would be 100 years. Does that make sense? Okay, so when you see people debating, well, it's 40 years, well, it's a, it's a generation. So um, anyways, did that change your life at all? No. no? Verse 17, it says, and it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river to the river Euphrates, or the river Euphrates. So here you have this smoking oven and a flaming torch. And when you read the commentaries on this, when, when people try to ascribe a meaning to this, they'll say things like, some will say, well, this represents the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night uh, as God leads people through the wilderness. Okay, possibly. Others would say this represents God's zeal and God's judgment. Maybe. Um, what we all agree on is whatever this is, it represents God's presence in making of this covenant. The important thing here is that when this covenant is made, Abraham is asleep. He's watching through the dream as this covenant is made. God is making this covenant apart from Abram. He's not going to be in the covenant. He's not going to walk through that. When God makes the covenant about the land that God is giving them, when God does this and God passes through the animals, it's God's way of saying, may I be like those dead animals if I do not make this covenant come true. So that's the idea. There is nothing that Abraham can ever do to fulfill this covenant because he's not one of the signers of this covenant. God keeps him completely out. Why is that important? Here in this covenant, God assumes all the responsibility. Within Christianity, there are those who believe that God is done with the Jewish people. That is called replacement theology, and it's very prevalent. Here, God is making a promise that has nothing to do with Abraham's behavior or his descendants' behavior. He says, this is your land, and I'm making the covenant Abraham, you have nothing to do with this. It's not based upon your behavior because, and and may I be like these dead animals if it doesn't happen. Does that make sense? So here, God makes a covenant on Abram's behalf. But I want you to notice verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the river Euphrates. So 
let me just show you, this is the area that God says I'm going to give you. You have the Nile River in Egypt and you have the Euphrates River, which is going to go all the way through Iraq. And so literally, it's Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, and all of that. So the question is, has Israel taken that yet? Has that been fulfilled? It hasn't, but it will. And God says, may I be like one of these dead animals if it doesn't happen. It's going to happen in the future. The Bible talks about this time period called the end times and um, says some very interesting things. So for instance, God says that Israel would come back into the land in the last days. Let me just show you a verse there in your outline and then, then we'll unpack it and wrap up. But in the book of Ezekiel, as God talks about the last days, he says this, God speaking, you will come against my, you will come up against my people Israel, underline that, like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days, underline that, that I will bring you against my land. It's my people Israel, my land, God says, in order that the nations may know me. It's a, it's a huge Bible study. It's very fascinating. But here, here's what we get from that little passage. In the last days, his people Israel will be in his land. Israel will be back in its homeland in Israel. Israel is the only nation that existed as a nation, as far as the world is concerned, ceased to exist as a nation. But in 1948, it became a nation again. They're back in their homeland. That's the last days. Now, when Jesus described it, he would say, and we've looked at this many times, he says, when that happens, that would begin not just the last days, but the last generation. And then Jesus said that there will be birth pains on the world, unlike anything the world has ever seen. And those birth pains would become closer and closer together and more and more intense. Would you agree that we've seen some birth pains in the last couple of years? Here's the thing with birth pains. They get closer and closer together, more and more intense. But they can only go on, they can only go on for so long until that baby is born. That generation that saw Israel become a nation again, that generation is now passing away. Uh, they haven't passed away, but they're, they're getting close. And so this tells us that, that we're very, very close to Jesus coming back as those birth pains continue. But I can also tell you, because it's birth pains, when a woman goes into labor, she has a contraction. She doesn't say, after this contraction, when things go back to normal, I'm gonna head down to the hospital. I'm gonna go down to the, the cafe, get me a latte and relax a little bit. Ladies, is that how it goes? It becomes more and more intense, closer and closer together, and then there's the birth. We're very, very close to the birth, to the birth. Well, did you find that interesting today? Well, with that, let's go ahead and, and close in prayer. I know we're going to have some bap, uh, baptisms in a, after the service today and uh, hot dogs and all that. So you want to stick around. Let's pray. Father, as uh, we close this today, Lord, help us to be those who speak your word, not our circumstances, to activate the promises that you have for us. 
Lord, we realize that even in this time, and many of us are facing some very difficult situations, you're not bound by our circumstance to take care of us, to bless us, to provide for us, that, that you're aware of our situation, you care for us, and you know exactly what to do. So help us in this time to represent you, first of all, by saying what you say about our situation, and then, Lord, being a light to those right now who need to know you. So, Father, as we close today, let me just say, may the Lord increase you more and more, you and your children, for you are blessed of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.